nurses union coming out with a uh, the R word, which is something that I think some are already familiar with, but it was uh, nice to see that things are progressing in the right direction. We're talking about ratios. Patient-to-nurse ratios have always been a, a point of concern with some, just in the fact that, he, especially over the last two to three years where the nurses have just been worked to the nub, uh, that the government looks to be trying to at least put something in place here along with the union that uh, hopefully gets them towards a new collective bargaining agreement. To talk about said agreement and and the progress announced today, Health Minister Adrian Dix, kind enough to join me. Uh, Minister Dix, good afternoon. Great to be on, on the show, Ray, the week after WrestleMania, Rob. Oh, now you just playing. I think that's very, very exciting, <laughs> very very propitious. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, you want to score points. You, you just found your way. I appreciate you even bringing that up. Um, there it is. I, I do have to say, as a guy that uh, was in the hospital once or twice during the pandemic, uh, for nothing serious, I was just so impressed by the nurses' resolve, how they were just uh, doing the best they could with whatever hand was dealt to them. But now that things are starting to, I guess you would say, come back down to quote unquote normal, that this is something that needed to happen. And we're talking about becoming the first province in Canada to announce a prescribed patient to nurse ratio in the healthcare system. Could you explain that for everybody? So we've negotiated uh, over the last number of months with nurses a new collective agreement that they're going to be putting to their members later in April. A part of, there are lots of issues dealt with it, but what we wanted to do with nurses is the same thing we did with doctors, which is sit down and say, how do we improve the situation for nurses in general and improve the public health care system? The notion of ratios, set ratios across the health system, meaning nurses in Fort St. John and in Vancouver are treated the same in this regard, uh, is something that's been effective internationally in places such as Australia. It's been a long time uh, demand of the BCMU, something that I've uh, long supported, and this was an opportunity for us to come together to provide the funding for it, the support for it. This is one of the tables where we address issues with the nurses that were not collective bargaining issues, not about wages and benefits, but about how do we improve the health system to make it better for nurses. This was a key uh, vision of theirs and one that we're implementing now in British Columbia. I'm curious to know how this gets implemented, because I think it sounds great from where we're having this conversation this afternoon, but the reality is, and I've talked to a couple of nurses about this even as uh, late as this afternoon, that there are already ratios in place, but the reality is, is you do what you have to do on said shift, and sometimes the ratios go out the window because you just got to deal with the chaos in front of you. How do you actually physically implement this to make sure that we're not still burning out our nurses? By adding to hours that nurses uh, deliver in the healthcare system. But at its core, we need more nurses. Now, in the last year, and in fact, since I've been Minister of Health, we've led Canada in recruiting nurses, but we've got to recruit a lot more. How do you do that? By working, making workplaces better. So you retain more of your existing nurses. If you don't lose them, you don't have to replace them. Critically important and to treat them well. And to recruit more nurses. And that's what we're going to set about to do, working together uh, with the union, with nurses in BC to recruit more people to our system because we you need, of course, if you're going to add hours, you need people. And you need people, you need um, more training. We've added 600 training spaces, more internationally educated nurses. We need to retain people longer, and we need people who have left the profession to come back and do this work. So at its core, to be successful, that's what we're going to need to do. But you can absolutely do this. They've demonstrated that in Australia. They've demonstrated that in California. We can demonstrate that here. But at its core, the main impediment to it 
will be that recruitment question and that retention question. And that's what the other elements of this agreement about those issues are about. You know, you mentioned recruiting, but I also think you bring up a really good point about those who left the field because they were either burnt out or just didn't feel that it was working for them and getting them back into the fold. Is that realistic? You think you can actually get some that have that experience, that feet on the ground approach that were working already in BC? You think you can get them back? Look, we demonstrated we could do that during COVID. People came back, not because of those workplace issues, but because of their commitment to healthcare. When we had all those contact tracers, all those immunizers, all those people who worked um, worked in our testing sites who were, who were nurses and highly trained health professionals, we didn't bring them out of the hospital. We couldn't do that. You wouldn't want to leave the hospital empty. We added new people. So it is possible to do, I think. But we need to do all of that. That's one important thing you can do experienced people who are able to to join and contribute now in addition to the recruitment and the retention and you do that by working together to improve the work site everywhere and that's really the intention of the agreement but what we did with doctors and we've had now 2600 primary care doctors join the new payment model for doctors was sit down and work with doctors what do we need to do together to address this and we came to support public health care and we came together in agreement And so far, the results have been excellent. We need to do the same process, and we're doing the same process with nurses. So we have a health human resources plan that's broader. And, Rob, you will know that one of the key elements of that plan has nothing to do specifically with hiring nurses at all. It has to do with a new model to keep people safer and more secure. We've developed that with the support of the BCNU and the HEU and others. And you do that by making uh, the workplace better and that's part of the key part of the underlying plan of this uh, of this agreement with nurses. One of the things that I appreciated, uh, and not to wax too poetically on this announcement, but one to two ratio for mental health care. I think that's something that we've, again, seen in theory, but it's nice to see that this is actually a commitment at the front of the announcement as opposed to just kind of a, a throwaway piece at the end. That's something that needed to be addressed, no? Absolutely, and obviously... This is another thing government's done. The area of healthcare we've spent the most money on incrementally. In other words, increased spending on the most since I've been Minister of Health. There's been mental health and addictions. Why? Because there wasn't much of a system in place and we're having to build that out. But every time we make an announcement about mental health care, you need more nurses, right? Not just the nurses to move, to operate the existing system, but more nurses and more health sciences professionals and more healthcare workers and more doctors to support that. So it's critical that people doing that work have the support they need. It can be very challenging work, especially on the acute care side, and that's why we need to support our nurses in this way. And that was really the goal of this. There is all of the things in this agreement about salary increases that, that healthcare workers have got across the board. It's a time of, of relatively high inflation, but the key parts of this agreement are the table with the Ministry of Health where we made some of these key policy adjustments. And I think um, it's a significant change, and it means that this isn't just you know a labor negotiation and you hear that there's a settlement and you're relieved about that maybe because you want there to be a settlement. In this case, this is also a reform of our nursing system that was, I think, needed. I appreciate the insight on this today, and I know that there's some tougher questions, but I'm sure we'll get a chance to get together again and talk about those. But for today, it's an announcement that I'm hoping the nurses look at and feel that people are actually fighting for them in this instance. So I do appreciate your time today, Minister. 
Hey, thank you. And the next time we'll talk about the other subject. Yeah, you you know what? You can I will call you Adrian in that conversation and we could talk that, about wrestling till the sun comes up. Very, you know I that. I won't I won't say that <laughs> a person should have gone over, but they should have gone over. I'll talk to you <laughs> thank later. Thank you. Right? Yeah, you leave on a high. I appreciate that. Thank you. Adrian Dick stopping by uh, to talk about the BC Nurses Union. And I, I told you, man, there's a lot of closet wrestling fans out there. But one story that caught my eye today, and I've been thinking about this for some time, is what is going to happen with SFU's football program after they didn't get a a buyer in the Lone Star Conference, which is a bunch of schools down in Texas and in the southern U.S., which was kind of the first red flag. Today they announced that they're just done. They've eliminated their football program, which seems almost jarring to me. Because I would assume that there were probably some options, something that they could do to prolong this, to find a way to get to a solution so they didn't have to eliminate the program as a whole. Because to me, that's there's got to be a way. Angus Reed, former SFU standout. You know him probably as a BC Lions lineman. Uh, now he is a award-winning book journalist, writer, slash jack-of-all-trades. Kind enough to join me. Angus, what's going on, fella? A uh, sad day. It's a sad day. Uh, you know, it's, uh, you look back and it's, uh, SFU was such a big part of my life and, and, you know, probably, probably hundreds now, I'd say of friends and, and uh, friends and memories I have with people over the course of time to realize that, as you said, they're just, uh, pulling the plug on it. It's, it's, it's kind of tough to digest. Well, you know, as we hear little bits of information coming out, you know, you, you hear from U sports that say they didn't even hear from Simon Fraser, yeah. which to me, and again, flying at 10,000 feet might've been an option to at least keep the program going. I don't know the intricacies of going from the NCAA with some sports and then back to CIS slash U sports, but surely there had to be a few other parachutes before you pull the plug on the whole thing. Well, again, I, I'm not privy to inside information that, you know, the conversations that have been going on, but I'll just say this kind of generally, if you really want something, you find a way. And if you don't, you tend to find an excuse. And, and again, I'm not privy to all the information. I, I hear things as everyone else has, but I do, you know, I coach high school football now. We had two young men that sign contracts to, you know, sign scholarships to go play at Simon Fraser for next year. And I was already aware of the, the Lone Star State issue about after this season not having conference to play in, but the full understanding was they would have a schedule and a league to play in for this year. And I made sure these two young men asked that question, you know, what is being, what does the future hold here? If we want to commit to go to the school, how much is the school committing back to their players, which we all know the number one objective of an athletic department is to support their players that have committed their lives to the school to commit to supporting them 100%. And they were told by the program that uh, all options are being explored. Now I I believe that from the football department side, because my understanding was hearing from the coaches themselves, they weren't even aware that the decision was, was happening like this. They were still trying to prepare for next season as per noted. So, you know, again, I don't know everything, but I do know, from Leadership 101, that communication is paramount. And when there's issues and problems trying to solve, if you are struggling and not coming up with a solution, you bring everybody into that equation. You bring everybody in that conversation, and you exhaust every opportunity 
if you really want to try to find a solution. That's my thinking. Yeah, and you know what? They've got such a great alumni. Like, I got to feel that the boosters would have been in on this conversation if need be. But let's go back just over a decade, Angus, and talk about the move from Canadian football. Like, I know that they were a part of the NAIA as well in the years that you were playing with Chris Beaton. Um, But let's talk about the move to the NCAA because that's a whole different ball of wax. Do you think in retrospect that that was the right move or maybe it just wasn't the right move for football? I'm I'm still confused with that move because, you know, I had the conversation today with an old friend that the, the origins of playing American ball was from Lauren Davies, the original athletic director, football coach that had this vision and whatever, the 1960s. And I, and I think it was great. And, and he did everything he could to support this and, and make it a viable option with this long-term view, you know, but times change and things evolved. And after Lauren passed, you know, it was sort of, we were left with in a situation where we were this kind of, America, one left Canadian school in the American program. Then they went to, to, to CIS, right, U Sports, and then they went back to this NCAA move. And, you know, anybody that knows anything about big-time college football, which is what the NCAA is, no matter what level you put it at, it's, it's, it's a big business. You don't just decide to play there. You make a full now buy-in financially. Like, it is a commitment from the school to not just say, all right, we'll, we'll go do this. You have to understand what that means. And I don't think for one second, and again, I can only speak from football because I just, I'm not privy to really the intricacies of the other programs. I know there wasn't the financial support commitment from the school to do what it takes to compete at that level from day one. So that begs the question, why would you do something if you're not willing to do what it really takes at the beginning? You're almost setting yourself up for this um, failure because, you, you know, you, you can't expect something to work unless you put the baseline of what's required. And NCAA football requires a massive leap in investment and support, which was never there. Yeah, it's tough. It is a sad day. I think you hit the nail on the head right at the get-go. Angus, I wish we could talk all afternoon as we used to, but uh, I hope I found you well, and thank you for doing this today. I, I appreciate that. And I can't say Jazz never had me on the show, so the intro was smooth <laughs> like that. It takes me back to my <laughs> high school days of – playing all-star games and cranking that out in the team bus. And so Jazz wasn't that unfortunate to have me on. So why not? Let's change it up a little bit. I love it. It sounds good. I'll keep playing it. Thank you, Angus. Appreciate it. All right. Angus Reed, former BC Lion, former SFU Klansman. And that, uh, again, is the insight from somebody who is very much in the loop. The premier of said province of British Columbia came out just yesterday with a multi-billion dollar four-point housing plan that was aimed at cracking down on the soaring real estate prices and construction and he wanted more rental units and it was a pretty big plan and then just a day later there is a forum, a Housing BC Together program which brings a lot of the different mayors from across the province and the leader of the opposition, the Liberal Party who is kind enough to join me now as, uh, yeah, Kevin Falcon kind enough to be here on CKNW. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Rob. Great to be on. Well, thank you for making time for me. I know that you've been running around today uh, doing a whole bunch of different things. But first and foremost, before I get into the thoughts of today, what were your first thoughts uh, when you heard this four-pillar plan that uh, Minister Eby came forward with yesterday? Well, I think the first thing we have to recognize is the context. So this is an NDP government that uh, ran for office, got elected in 2017 with two key promises. One, They were going to make housing more affordable in B.C. Number two, the government, if you can believe this, government was going to build 114,000 affordable homes within 10 years. Now, 
here we are, six years. They're in their second term, six years into government. And what do we have? We've got the highest housing prices now in North America, third highest on the planet. And we've got the highest rents, average rents in Canada, right here in BC. And the 114,000 affordable homes they said they were going to build within 10 years, we're in year six. They've built a fraction of them. In fact, 16,000. And that's if we're being generous in the numbers. And the announcement that the premier made the other day, you know, frankly, it's just another announcement. Now they're saying ignore the old plan, which was a total policy failure. And here's our new ideas that we think are going to fix things. And I think the big problem, Rob, is that, you know, so little of the NDP actually come from private sector backgrounds and actually know what it takes to actually build housing. And it's not going to be government that gets it done. It's going to be the not-for-profit and the private sector that's going to get the housing bill. We just need government that understands how to make that happen. I think one of the things that caught me by surprise as a guy that has bought a pre-sale home before is finding out that the NDP want more money. We were talking about this last hour in the fact that if I bought a pre-sale for let's just say a million dollars but now it appraises at 1.2 I've got to pay the the taxes on the 1.2 as opposed to the original 1 million. That's four, five, six, seven thousand dollars in additional property transfer tax that I have to pay because of the government. That strikes a chord with me because as a guy that is you know wanting to get a good start and make things happen, all of a sudden I've got to dig into my pockets for thousands of more dollars. Well, this is, uh, you've raised a very, very important point. You know, when they, when they got elected uh, in 2017, the first budget that came out with introduced a whole blizzard of new taxes onto housing and new regulatory uh, requirements that they were imposing on the housing sector. And they focused entirely on what, what I call the demand side of the equation, but they forgot about the supply side. You know, when I retired from public life in 2013, you could buy a townhome in, in Surrey for $400,000. Today, million dollars, right? That's a public policy failure. And just adding more costs and extracting more money out of the people that are trying to get into the housing market or into the rental market is not going to be the way to go. And this is you know, this is the fundamental disconnect, I think, that this government has. Now they're offering up these new ideas that I also think are problematic. And if we have time, we can talk about those, too. Well, I've got all the time in the world to talk about those things. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, talk, let's talk then about their idea that they now want to make every single single-family neighborhood in the province uh, now, uh, are, you know, able to up-zone automatically without any input from the local government, uh, that they're now going to allow up to four units of housing on every single family lot. Well, here's the problem. Number one, think about this for a second. That means that a lot of neighborhoods that have no transit or very little transit are now going to suddenly have all these new homes built and all those folks are going to have to now buy cars to get around because there's no access to transit. Second thing you got to think about is if you take a street that say has 10 homes and suddenly you upgrade, you got 40 homes. Now you're going to have, what about the cost of upgrading all the sewer, the water, the power, None of that's been thought about, but somebody's got to pay for that. Who is that? Municipality? Is it the the, the end buyer? Is it the province? Um, And here's the other thing, just basic stuff. It doesn't align with what the federal government's trying to do. So they've got a program with CMHC, for example, that says we'll provide developers low-cost financing to build affordable housing. Great. The problem is it's got to be five units or more. So here they are saying they're going to up zone to four units, and it's not even going to meet the federal, another level of government a requirement in terms of getting housing. So I think the problem is we've got people that have the best of intentions but don't understand the market. I was in the housing business. We built more housing in the company I was at than the entire province of British Columbia over the same period of time. So I think it's important that we know that we have people there that know how to get things built and how to get that supply we desperately need. 
Mr. Falcon, we started the show with a conversation about a memo that allegedly came out from the city of Vancouver just a couple of days ago with regards to a, a real quick sweep from the VPD just efforting to try and get all these people that are living down in Tent City and the Maine and Hastings area out of here. Obviously, it was faced with abrupt, uh, you know, backlash, for lack of a better phrase. What do we do here? I mean, we've been talking about this for a couple of years. I mean, obviously, we've got to place these citizens somewhere. How do we finally address that downtown core? Okay, well, first of all, I I think it is really important that we look at this challenge with very clear eyes. And I think we have to understand that the reason these tent cities exist to a large degree is because it's a lot easier for the drug dealers to access their clientele when they're all in one area. You've got to stop pretending this is just about housing. It's also about drug dealing. And, uh, you know, frankly, we've got to make sure I've said that we're going to the BC Liberals brought out a mental health and addiction policy we call better as possible. It's got two elements. I call it compassion and consequences. Compassion for those that are genuinely struggling with severe mental health. And for those, we would build modernized, upgraded Riverview type facilities to ensure that they are brought off the street and put into 24-7 care where they can be properly looked after and stabilized with proper psychiatric and medical support. And the other part of that is consequences. And that means that the repeat violent offenders that that David Eby as Attorney General for five and a half years oversaw a a catch and release system that continues to this day where people are arrested, they're released back into the streets often the same day, is failed community. And we're going to have consequences and make sure that those folks that think they can engage in that kind of criminal behavior are going to feel the consequences. We're going to back up the police with resources. And we're going to make sure that the Crown prosecutors hold people in jail that should not be released. Community safety comes before the rights of an individual to go out and reoffend. But where, where would we put them? Uh, well, for starters, the, the, those with severe mental health issues will uh, put in the new modernized, upgraded Riverview-type facilities that I talked about. Mm. In our plan, we said we're going to triple the, uh, the Redfish facility that was started by the BC Liberals out at Riverview from 105 beds to over 300. We will also have facilities on the island in the different regions of the province, the Kootenays, the north, and the interior. Then we're going to have addiction treatment facilities where we're going to focus on helping people get off their addiction. That is going to be the primary um, um, effort and goal of a a government led by Kevin Falcon. I'm not this idea that publicly supplied addictive drugs is the entire focus of this NDP government and decriminalizing Hard drugs like you know methamphetamine, heroin, cocaine, et cetera, is going to somehow get us to a better place, I think is a big mistake. We've got to focus on treatment and recovery as being our primary objective, uh, well recognizing that you know folks that need help, uh, we're going to make sure it's there for them. All right. I thank you for your thoughts today. I'm going to open up the phone lines. We'll hear from the general public. But your time was valuable for me today, and it was uh, a pleasure to talk. No problem. Great having you uh, uh, do the show, uh, Rob. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Kevin Falcon, leader of the BC Liberal Party. Did you do your taxes? And uh, if you did, I I, I just want to put this out there. Better Business Bureau. We're going to talk to somebody from there just uh, a couple of seconds ago. Many BC and Yukon residents are starting to get better Uh, at avoiding these tax refund scam calls and texts, but they continue to be prevalent. For example, somebody calls you and says, "Ah, we got your stuff, but there's a few changes we need. I just need to verify you, and we need to get this kind of information from you and that kind of information from you. And they could do it through text, they could do it through email, or they could call you and uh, talking about tax refunds. So I think this is something we got to get into. Simone Liss is with the Better Business Bureau. She's the CEO and president. Kind enough to join me this afternoon. Simone, good afternoon. 
Hello. Good afternoon. Well, you know what? I always think if there's a way to find it, some scammer is going to at least, you know, shoot their shot for lack of a better phrase. But I got to think if somebody called me talking about my, you know, refund or, you know, an adjustment needed to be made, I would at least listen. But this is something that we have to be concerned with. No. I mean, absolutely. I mean, uh, impersonation type scams are, are very, very common. And, you know, what's similar about all of them is that they are looking to catch you off guard and they're using the reputation of organizations that you know and often trust. Uh, so in at tax time, we can anticipate and we see that tax scams go up. I think the biggest fear that I have is my son and daughter, 20 and 18 respectively, are just starting to get into the world of taxes and they're just starting to do things on their own. And for example, I just read this Vancouver Post secondary student ended up losing nearly $3,000 because she received a message from Service Canada, quote unquote, that there was something up with her tax refund and they didn't know where to deposit it. So of course she gave her bank information, logged in and didn't think anything of it. And then she was out $2,800. This young generation is smart, but there's still got to be red flags that even they need to pay attention to. Absolutely. I mean, often we're really busy, too. And, and, and in fairness to the student, this can happen to anyone. Uh, you know, often people reach out to us and they say, oh, you know, the scam to target seniors or it's the seniors that are falling prey. Uh, but we, we see scams that are really just trying to catch you when you're unaware uh, or maybe not even paying attention. And, and in this specific situation... The uh, student was on her phone, got a text, wasn't really paying attention and and just started to do everything that ended up opening her bank account to somebody else. And so we really want to take the time to educate people about how to make sure that if you do get a text or you get an email or you get a phone call and it's unsolicited, meaning you didn't reach out to them using a trusted source, that you really take some time to think about it. Uh, to do your own research and not respond. Uh, so, I mean, and, and looking for some of these things like, for example, the CRA, that Service Canada will never, ever send you a text. They'll never ask you to verify your banking information in that mechanism. One of the other things that I, and you posted it at uh, bbb.org today, which I thought was a great article to read, was the challenges with artificial intelligence. I mean, the, the fact that we can now distort voices and likenesses, that's a whole new wave of things that should be a concern. Well, I mean, even just already, like just looking at your phone and, and thinking that a phone number that says it's coming from the CRA, you think that that's legitimate. The technology has been around for many years. Uh, that you know that they can spoof and imitate legitimate sources so you really have to be very cautious with inbound activity and never respond if if you're at all concerned i mean if i would just take down their information and using a trusted source at that point call them directly and, and verify and my last one for you, Simone, and I really pre- I love these kind of conversations because there's always something that's kind of a light bulb moment for me I just got my iPad refixed, refabricated. It's back in business. And then I realized that I had about 80 passwords stored on that computer. And I thought to myself, I almost sold it. And I thought, boy, I didn't clear my cash. I didn't do all the little things that I need to do. We don't only have to change our passwords, but we have to make sure that we remember how many passwords and credit card numbers we have that are already stored on our computer. How do we possibly protect everything on that front? 
Well, I think I think you hit the the you know the 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 nail on the head. Really, I mean, we have to change our passwords. We have to have some sort of, of manager that we can keep track of all these different places where we're storing our information. And with things like phones and 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 computers that are really mobile, like an iPad or a tablet, we have to do more than just put a password on those devices. If those devices uh, do get lost or stolen then potentially there is all that information. And the good news is some of these devices have remote tools that allow you to wipe them remotely, which is great. Um, but we want you to make sure that you are securing the devices, that any sort of information that you have on there, um, that you are taking the time to use things like um, multi-factor authentication, which basically means that if someone wants to log into, say, your Google account, uh, then it might send a text to your phone and confirm your identity. So it's those kind of things that really help protect you if, you're, if your information does get uh, stolen or hacked in some way. Yeah, it's a few extra seconds, but that uh, multi-authentication uh, is definitely a game changer for me. Simone, thank you for all the information today and for making time for me. Thank you for having us. And please, um, if you are wanting to read out more, please visit us at bbb.org. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.